Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider many fascinating aspects of language. Now, you might think this topic sounds arcane or dry, but we promise you it's anything but. Yes, if you love books, you're going to love this episode. Our guest, David Shariat Madari, is a writer and editor at The Guardian. He studied linguistics at Cambridge University and the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and he's the author of Don't Believe a Word, The Surprising Truth About Language. I think this might be one of those rare times when we were persuaded to buy a book just from a blurb. We were interested anyway, and then we saw that Andrew Solomon, a phenomenal nonfiction writer, had this to say. David Shariat Madari makes us look afresh at the language we speak and how it structures our intimacies, our thoughts, and our identities. Wry and immensely intelligent, don't believe a word awakens us to the complexities of communication that we too readily ignore, and it does so with both deep scholarship and a light touch. I mean, how could we pass that up? We couldn't. And I'm so glad we didn't. The book is so interesting. And I loved our conversation with David. We started by asking him whether modern practices like tweeting and texting are eroding our ability to communicate. Here's what he said. This is the number one preoccupation, I think, that people have about language They feel that it's deteriorating. They feel that it's getting worse, that things aren't what they used to be. But the reason I'm kind of confident that we'll be okay is that people have said this through the centuries. English has a long literary tradition, and we can actually see people saying this in the 18th century, in the 16th century, and even earlier. So none of their predictions of catastrophe and of the idea that we'd all be kind of speaking in half syllables and grunting, none of those predictions came true, which is good for us. Mm -hmm. Um, You note in your book that changes in language can throw into sharp relief aspects of our culture. And one of the examples that you give is changes to words that are linked to women and to sex. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... What you find historically is that words that are linked to women's roles tend to develop in a kind of unsavory direction. So one example is the word hussy. Actually, the etymology of that word, that developed from huswith, so housewife, Mm -hmm. a neutral descriptor of a woman who had domestic duties. And it was used a great deal, but because it was associated with women and, you know, because of pervasive sexism, it would get this sort of unsavory tinge and it would be used to, you know. And uh, similarly with madam, which was a neutral form of address, even a respectful form of address, gets used eventually to mean like someone who runs a brothel, a house of ill repute. And this kind of thing happens quite a lot, in particular with words to do with women. The assumption has to be it's pervasive sexism that does that and it affects the language. It's an example of the way that 
culture seeps into language and dominant cultural ideas and dominant prejudices leave their impression on the language that we speak. I love this quote from your book. You say, in the word toilets shift from innocuous to noxious, we have several important clues about how the world and human nature influence language. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, so in the book, I just I take a ride on this word through history, basically. The word toilet, which again has been a sort of victim of pejoration, which is the phenomenon I just described with words around women. So it's getting worse, basically. As the word travels through history, it gets kind of unsavory associations, you know, becomes more sort of taboo. It starts off meaning a piece of cloth. It's borrowed from the French. It was a domestic item. And often people would lay it over the table that they would use to prepare themselves before they went out. It garnered this association of getting ready and preparing yourself and possibly washing yourself. And it's from there that gradually it migrates into the territory of being like the place, the bathroom, the place where you go to the toilet and do your business. It's interesting to realize that originally toilet was a euphemism. So it was actually a word that was used in order to cover up the kind of foul associations of that place, right? Because it was this good word, which meant, you know, a, a kind of beautiful silken cloth or a place that you would prepare yourself. And so that gets used rather than, for example, latrine to refer to the place that we'd rather not think about. But then, of course, what happens is it gets used so often that it just becomes indistinguishable from the thing that we'd rather not think about. And then you have to find a new word to replace that. And that's what bathroom is. Bathroom is a euphemism that was used instead of toilet because toilet was felt to have, you know, these unpleasant associations. And this is a phenomenon that we call the euphemism treadmill, where a nicer word is used to substitute for a word that has slightly icky associations, but eventually it gets contaminated as well. You have to recruit a new word and the process goes on and on and on. And that's, that's a kind of fairly typical thing we see in language. Yeah. Now, you make the case that the original meaning of a word is not a guide to its kind of quote unquote true meaning. And the way that a word is used now is what matters. But you also say that etymology has a lot to teach us about culture and history and the way we think. One of the words you use in, as an example, you talk about happiness. And you said, the etymology of happiness helps us understand an important cultural shift. While telling us nothing of the real meaning of the English word today, it lets us see happiness in proper perspective and can be used as a tool to interrogate the usefulness of the concept. How so? So happiness is quite interesting. That element hap at the beginning is also seen in another English word to happen, which kind of gives you a clue as to what the original meaning might have been. And the original meaning was closer to something random that occurs that is maybe good for you. So it's like good fortune, but the hap element of it shows that this is unpredictable. It's fleeting it's just a kind of bump of good fortune that might happen. It's not lasting. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that under the influence of Enlightenment philosophy in the 18th century in particular, um, the movement towards sort of imagining that 
man can achieve happiness. Indeed, that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, and it can be a permanent state of contentment. That was actually a kind of philosophical and political and moral development in Western societies, which then altered the meaning that we habitually associate with that word. It sort of changed it from this unpredictable, fleeting thing to something that we can aspire to that could be more like a permanent state. Right. And then, of course, there's the really interesting question of if there's a word for this state, which actually in other cultures, you know, there isn't so much of a concept along those lines. In French, you have bonheur, which literally means good hour. So there again, contained in that word is the concept of it being fleeting. Mm -hmm. But if in a kind of English tradition, we've got used to the idea of happiness being something that lasts and is a kind of permanent state, that actually sets up interesting problems for people if that doesn't often happen you know yeah it's like <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of aspect of psychology there that's quite interesting yeah we might all be a lot happier if we remembered that it's a fleeting concept exactly yeah are we are we kind of pursuing something actually that's unattainable and that there's a kind of conceit of philosophers from the 18th century it's just interesting to reflect that that was the potentially slightly more realistic approach to the idea of happiness that our ancestors had Mm -hmm. And that that's preserved in the etymology of the word. Um, you note in the book that it's both the case that words come into being to name a concept and that words themselves can help create concepts. I think two of the examples you give are the words babysitter and podcasting. Can you describe for listeners who haven't read the book how that works? Those are both words where you've kind of taken scraps of the language and put them together to form a new word. So babysitting, you know, I mean, it's not a literal compound. We don't sit on the baby. That would be really bad babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting somewhere and you're looking after a baby. If you look in some of the historical dictionaries, this phrase, you know, I don't think it would have existed before the 20th century. I don't know exactly when it would have come into common usage, but it, it obviously was part and parcel of a shift whereby people had more leisure time and were able to afford to pay for someone to come and look after their child in a way that just wasn't part of the cultural repertoire of the 19th century, for example. Or if it was, it wasn't formalized. Um, so again, scraps of the language are recruited and stuck together in order to sort of codify something that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And codifying it then makes it easier to refer to and then might make it even more common because like you would think oh i need to earn some money i don't know what to do maybe i could try babysitting mm -hmm. and so the the word and the concept maybe build momentum and that's how a change in the culture occurs I love this point about how words can come together to both reflect and create a concept. It's reminiscent, too, of certain examples of use of language by animals, right? Oh, yeah. David talks in his book about animal communication. He describes a parrot named Alex who knew the word for rock and he knew the word for corn. And then when he was introduced to a new type of corn that was kind of hard, dried corn, he invented a new word for it, which was rock corn. 
That's actually a pretty big cognitive leap. He invented that compound himself, and it shows that he's not just responding by rote when the stimulus is in front of him. He can take the words and create a new concept with them. Alex the parrot could also use abstract time words like tomorrow, and he understood what they meant. And then, of course, there's Coco, the famous gorilla who had an active vocabulary of, I think, a thousand signs. Just let that number sink in for a minute. Gorilla, a thousand signs. Yeah, Yeah, it's just amazing. And like Alex, Coco could combine those words in sophisticated and original ways. David gives the example where Coco didn't know the word for ring. And so she combined the words finger and bracelet. Yeah, it's so interesting. And since we were just talking with David about how combining words can cause a kind of change, doesn't it make you not just marvel at Coco's verbal ability, but also wonder how this use of language alters the world for her? Yes, endlessly. And while we're on the subject of great apes, do you know about Kanzi the bonobo? No, I don't. Ah, okay. Well, for people who don't know, bonobos are almost identical to chimps with some significant cultural differences. And like chimps, they're our closest genetic relatives. So Kanzi lives at Ape Cognition and Conservation Initiative in Iowa, and he uses a lexicon keyboard. In other words, instead of letters, there are pictures, like hieroglyphic kind of pictures, which in itself is remarkable. And the way that happened was... Um, The researchers there tried to teach his mother when Kanzi was an infant, but she couldn't learn how to do it. And he didn't even seem to be paying attention. He was off playing in the corner. Well, two years later, Kanzi starts using the keyboard spontaneously and fluently. Wow. Yeah, they had no idea. He just learned from observation. And at this point, his keyboard has something like 450 symbols. That's crazy. It's crazy. And Kanzi has a vocabulary of several thousand words. His sister, Panbanisha, also knew how to use the keyboard. But then one day, Panbanisha started to actually write. You can see this on YouTube. We will link to it in the show notes. But instead of using the lexicon keyboard, Panbanisha would sometimes draw the symbols in chalk on the floor to express her meaning. I have to go watch that video. I just, I have this powerful sense of astonishment and a kind of sense of the potential of the universe is very, is knocking me back a little. (laughs) Yes. The potential of the universe and also just the linkage of all living creatures in the universe. The interesting thing to me, one interesting thing to me is we keep moving the bar for what makes animals animals and what makes us human, right? So for a long time, people said animals couldn't use tools. Well, Kanzi can build a campfire and roast marshmallows unassisted. And orangutans in the wild use big leaves as umbrellas. And we used to believe animals didn't feel pain, probably in part to justify doing atrocious things to animals. But we used to nonetheless believe this. And we believe they didn't have emotions and that they didn't recognize themselves in mirrors. And now we know none of those things are true. Right. There have been recent books too about how systems of communications among birds and also among trees are far more sophisticated than we previously realized. I also want to highly recommend a book by Franz de Waal, which might be pronounced Franz de Waal, I'm not sure. But anyway, (laughs) he wrote a book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? It's such a good book. uh, And it clearly establishes that we don't know what we don't know in this world. Anyway, back to humans. David's discussion of the power of language brought to mind for me a moment involving my daughter. I took the opportunity to ask him about it. Um, 
this notion of labeling something and how that can change the culture reminded me of the word bully. When I was growing up, all sorts of terrible behavior, you know, went on in the classroom or at schools, especially in middle school. And we had the word bully, but it really meant, you know, the, the really it was applied to boys, I think. And it was big, beefy boys who were just mean, but had a very narrow connotation, I think. And now, at least in my daughter's experience, really any kind of nastiness that's reaches a certain level uh, and sustained for a while is called bullying. She was experiencing something in, in middle school. And I said to her, do you think you're being bullied? As soon as she had that word for it, it, it just changed her mentality about it entirely. And it allowed her to shift the feeling of responsibility onto them from her. And it was very helpful psychologically. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Words are influential. What you're saying reminds me of sort of medical diagnoses or even kind of mental health diagnoses. Thinking of something as I have anxiety, for example, might make you think about your problems in a slightly different way. You've kind of collected them together and you've given them a label and your approach to them might be different then. There's an interesting thing around sort of mental health diagnoses they become hugely familiar and they're used a lot by lay people now in a way that in the past, perhaps some of these things would have been thought of as the trials and tribulations of life or quirks of personality or differences in personality. But now there's an aspect of, of that that's sort of more medicalized. If you have a diagnosis, maybe you take a medication as well. So you can see how words change people's conception of things and actually can lead to effects in the real world. Yeah. And then on the flip side, one criticism of having labels for these kinds of diagnoses is it can be restrictive. Anxiety doesn't allow for all kinds of nuance that might go into that word that a particular person might be experiencing. So I guess there's power in, in each word and the power can be for good or evil in, in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Eve and I are both children's book authors, and we're particularly aware of the evolution of language in children's books over the course of our lifetimes. So if you take picture books, for example, which are books for you know very young children, as a general rule, there are dramatically fewer words in picture books than there were in picture books of our own youth, and there are fewer complicated words. I'm not saying this signals a decline in our ability to communicate necessarily, but I think it does reflect changes in our way of thinking, our ability to maintain focus, for example. So historically, have changes in language reflected changes in thought patterns on a societal level? That's really, that's really interesting. I mean, I would ask about, about the children's book thing. Part of me wonders whether... First, it might be interesting to look for explanations along the lines of have approaches to children's books changed because of insights from psychology or sort of education science? Is there a sense that pictures and colors are more important in terms of engaging the reader or something? I don't know. I mean, there could be other explanations. I suppose the default explanation, which is that there's a, a dumbing down. It's tempting, but I yeah. wonder whether it's, it, it, it feels too easy maybe to leap to that conclusion. 
because mm-hmm. I think it's part and parcel of declinism, which often the picture is actually more complicated in reality. Mm-hmm. It may be that children of that age are getting their complexity from elsewhere. And it may be that things that they're exposed to in other media are obviating the need for long words in books. And it's often really hard to tease apart exactly what's going on in a cultural change or a change in fashion. And it's unlikely to be one thing. Well, I do think you're onto something when you talk about psychology, because I do think that the psychology of kids at the relevant age is taken into account more than it used to be. That's interesting. And then I'm also thinking about economics playing a role here because picture books used to be a lot longer. And now there's this, you know, biblical thou shalt not publish a picture book longer than 32 pages. And I don't think that that's the sole answer because I do think there are many fewer words per page than there used to be. And that has nothing to do with economics, but economics could be one factor. Mm -hmm. I want to ask also about Iris Murdoch. (laughs) You mentioned Iris Murdoch's conception of language as a kind of net over our minds, one that restricts our thinking. A fascinating example of this is the apparent impact of languages that assign gender to objects in a seemingly arbitrary fashion. So for example, the French word for sock is feminine, but the French word for tree is masculine. And every time you say a noun, just about, gender comes into play because you have to use the correspondingly gendered pronoun, article, or adjective. So you might think that gender differences as we think of them would have less meaning as a result because gender is imposed randomly on everything. Do studies confirm that? Well, there have been some interesting studies that sort of go against what you would imagine to be the case. And you would imagine that all of this stuff would fade completely into the background and would have no impact on the way speakers thought about things because it's just part of the scaffolding of language. It's just it's just the plumbing. But some studies were done in the last 10 or 15 years that seem to suggest that might not be entirely the case. For example, the word for key in German is masculine and in Spanish it's feminine. And when they were given under test conditions, when they were asked to generate words that they associate with these items, the German speakers chose words like hard, heavy, jagged, and the Spanish speakers chose words that you might think of or that they might think of as somewhat more stereotypically feminine, like little, lovely, shiny. Mm -hmm. They did this with a number of other words. They did it with the word bridge, which is feminine in German and masculine in Spanish, and German speakers you know, picked adjectives like elegant, pretty, and slender, and Spanish speakers picked adjectives like strong and sturdy and towering. So there's a hint that maybe these effects do go quite deep, and that even structural aspects of the language influence people's thoughts about the world, or their habits of thinking about the world. It's so interesting to me that this structural aspect of the language, meaning assigning gender randomly to words, does more than affect how people see the world. It also ends up reinforcing gender stereotypes. They get imposed on everything, including keys and bridges. Even though you could legitimately have expected this characteristic of language to lessen society's sense of gender difference. 
I think you and I may differ here and that upsets me a lot. But I think it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. So David made it clear that whether words are masculine or feminine impacts culture. But I don't believe that assigning gender to words could have been totally random. There had to have been cultural implications attached, even if those implications are lost to us now. I mean, that is possible, but they're so strange, these assignations in many instances, that to the existing cultures, they have to feel arbitrary. So for example, the French word for a button-down shirt for men is assigned the feminine and the French word for a woman's blouse is assigned the masculine. So to the existing culture, the arbitrariness could theoretically contribute to a diminishment of a sense of gender difference. But instead, as David explained, it works the other way. Okay, I see what you mean now. And I don't disagree that today those distinctions seem arbitrary. But I still think it's worth thinking about the historical antecedents. Yes, I agree. It would be fascinating to know. At any rate, I, I also want to go back to another point that David made about picture books. I've been walking around for years thinking that the dramatic decrease in the number of words in picture book texts over the generations, I've been thinking that that decrease must reflect something troubling about our collective ability to think. Um, and it was nice to be reminded that these kinds of issues are often very complicated and that there are likely a number of forces in play, you know, economics, a, a new emphasis on psychology, all of that. Yes. And not just a degradation of society. Right. right. And on that positive note, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find David on Twitter at D underscore Shariat Madari. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.